In the 1960s, a social psychologist by the name of Eric Erickson did a study on social development. He said that teenagers often struggle with role confusion versus identity crisis. That teenagers are searching for an identity apart from their parents. They want to be known for something, for anything. He said, for a teenager, a bad reputation is better than no reputation. So they experiment with their dress, with their hair, their music, their friends, and, and even their walk. And it's done in a search for their identity. Erickson said that if a teenager doesn't resolve his identity crisis by the time he graduates high school, then often for the rest of his life he will struggle with who he is. He will struggle with how to relate to the world around him. He will never know who he really is. He'll be trapped as a teenager in an adult's body for the rest of his life. I thought about how that relates in the spiritual world, for sadly many Christians today are stuck with an adolescent faith. Many would confess that they haven't really changed that much since coming to faith in Jesus and they kind of feel stuck. Physically, they are adults, but spiritually, they are just adolescents. Why are people stuck in the same place spiritually year after year? I believe it has a lot to do with the fact that many Christians do not know who they are in Christ. They do not know the identity they have Through Jesus Christ. And without that, we simply drift through life rather than living by the reality of who God has created us and saved us to be. For the next couple of weeks, we are going to seek to understand who we are in Christ so that we can live the life that Jesus intends for us to live. We're going to look at some passages that define for us, that should define for us our identity in Christ. For when we discover who we are in Christ, who Scripture says that we are, it will change us. My prayer for this series is that through it, we'll be secure in our identity in Christ so that we don't let the world define us. or We don't seek our identity in the things of the world. We're going to start in the book of Romans today. So open your Bible to Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. Page 860 in your pew Bibles when you find that. I'll ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Romans 5.8, the main verse for today. But God demonstrates His own love for us, His own love toward us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us title of the message today is, I Am Loved. Let's pray. Holy Father, we love You. Father, we thank You that You have loved us with an everlasting love. We thank You that You have demonstrated Your love for us, sending Jesus to die in our place. Father, today we need to understand what it means that we are loved and why Your love for us is so very amazing. In this time that we have, as we look at your word, let your spirit give us ears to hear. Let your word sink deep down into our hearts and bring the kind of change that we need. Father, many today seek approval. They seek their identity. They seek love from the many things and the many places that this world offers. Lord, if we could just grasp the concept of how loved we are by You, 
how accepted we are by you because of Jesus. Father, we need to go no further. So today, Lord, open our hearts to receive your word. Speak to us in ways that maybe we've never understood your love before. I ask you to fill me with your Holy Spirit to give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. That I could speak your words and your ways for your glory. Father, make us aware of your great love for us. The Holy Spirit shed that love abroad in our hearts today. That it would overflow in our lives and our actions, our attitudes and in everything else. Work in this time and do what needs to be done in each one of our lives. We ask you, Father, to save the lost, to restore the backslider, courage the discouraged, strengthen the weak, revive the lukewarm, and just generally let us know that you are here and that you are at work in our lives, that as we go out this week, we would be lights that shine brightly for Jesus our Savior. It is in His Precious and holy name we ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. We cannot properly understand God, who He is and what He's like, without understanding His love for humanity. And this is important because there are People today, it is not uncommon to find folks who, who wonder if God truly can love them. Maybe they've lived lives where they've done things that they feel guilty about. And they wonder if God can love them as someone who has done such, in their mind, terrible things. And indeed, I think that's a good question. Who, who does God love? Does God only love the, the righteous and true? Or does God love sinners? Does God love those who are pure? Does God love those who are sexually immoral? Does God only love those who are straight? Or does God love homosexuals? Does God only love those who worship Jesus? Or does God love Muslims and Buddhists? People involved in Wicca as well. Does God only love people who who believe in God or does God love the atheists and the agnostics? Who exactly does God love? That's an important question for us to be able to answer. And I think it's also important because when we talk about God's love, many times some people really aren't that amazed by it. I mean, why wouldn't God love them? I mean, they're, they're Americans. They're good moral people. They're good spouses, they've raised their kids to be productive members of society, they, they work hard, and, and doggone it, people like them. Why wouldn't God love them? And I think in, in both of these groups, those who wonder, can God love me because of where I've been, and those who say, why wouldn't God love me, why is that amazing, this verse speaks to us in a powerful way. Paul says that God demonstrates His own love toward us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners. Now, that's a a powerful thought. Who are the people that God loves? Well, according to Romans 5a, it is 
It is sinners. And I think it is terribly easy for us to overlook the depths of our own sin. I know for me, I can very easily tell you how sinful someone else is. But I'm probably not as bad. For a variety of reasons that in my mind make really good sense. And I think it's important for us to to not rush past the while we were still sinners part. But to understand what it means that we we were or in some cases, maybe we still are sinners. Because only when we understand God's love for sinners, can we truly appreciate God's love for us Uh, until I understand Who I am apart from Christ, I really can't be amazed at who I am in Christ. So I want us to to look at a passage that that I think really expresses the depths of human sin. Turn back just a page or two to Romans chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 10 through 18. Just kind of slowly walk through this a bit. Paul starts out in verse 10 by saying there is none righteous. No, not one. And I guess we could stop there. None of us are righteous on our own. This is God's view of humanity in general. This is the overarching thought of all of the rest of what we're going to look at in this particular section. On our own. Naturally, we are unrighteous. In fact, according to Isaiah, our righteousness is as filthy rags. Now, I've talked about this before, but it's to me the the word picture when I learned this was so powerful that I always want to repeat it to get it in our mind. The idea of a filthy rag that Isaiah says is that of a kind of rag that was used to wrap up a leper's sores. Right? It was a, a rag that was putrid and unclean and, and really was so nasty it could not be fixed. And Isaiah says that not our sin is as filthy rags. Apart from Jesus, our righteousness. Think about that. The very best we can do apart from Jesus Christ is filthy, putrid, unclean, unfixable rags. That is who we are. There is none righteous. No, not one. And so now Paul begins to explain what it means to not be righteous. There is none who understands. The idea of none who understands is they don't comprehend spiritual things. See, in our sin... In our sinful nature, in our unrighteous state, we don't understand the depths of our sin. We think our sin is not that bad. We think as long as we're less sinful than than Billy Bob, we're good to go. We don't understand exactly how holy and righteous and great and awesome God is. We don't understand what actually happened on the cross and how amazing it is that the Son of God would die in our place. We don't understand why we can't fix it ourselves. 
on our own, we don't understand these things. There is none who, who seeks after God. On, on our own, we never really seek after God. Now, this doesn't mean that sinful people never seek after a God. For many sinful people seek after a God. But they don't want the holy and righteous and awesome God of the Bible. Instead, they want a Play-Doh God. They want a God that they can mold and that they can shape. And a God who says that this action is okay because it makes me happy. A God who says this activity is fine because the world is different now and society has changed. We want a God who's a a bit less exacting. A God who's a bit less demanding. A God who, who doesn't say things like the wages of sin is death. Sinful man doesn't really seek after the true and the holy God of the Bible. Verse 12, it says, they, they have all turned aside. And that means that basically they're going the wrong way. I think the, the word picture of turned aside is that of a soldier who should be advancing in the battle, but is actually retreating. And the picture for us is that while we should be walking in one way, following the Lord, we're actually walking in another. So think about like in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about the broad and the narrow way. The broad way of destruction, the narrow way of righteousness. On our own, we aren't walking the the narrow way of righteousness to life. We are walking the broad way to destruction. In fact, if you, to me, if you take together, have turned aside with none who understands... I think you can picture a people who are walking the broad way to destruction, but think they're on the narrow way to life. Have you ever talked to somebody that was clearly living a life contrary to what Scripture said? Clearly doing what the Bible has said, thou shalt not do. And God has even said, those who do these things shall not enter the kingdom of God. But when you talk to them about it, their answer is, I'm going to be okay. Me and God have a thing. Why do they say that? It's because they've turned aside and they really don't understand. He goes on to say and have altogether become unprofitable. See, a person living in their sins is unprofitable for the kingdom of God. And they cannot accomplish the things that God has put them on this earth to do. We were created specifically to accomplish certain things. We were saved specifically to accomplish certain things. But a person living in their sin, a person who is unrighteous, they cannot accomplish those things. They are unprofitable for the purpose in which God has created them to be. There is none who does good. No, not one. Just every action is Probably some form of continued rebellion. You say, but wait. That's not true. I know lots of people who are unbelievers and they do all kinds of good acts. And you're right. I know many good, moral unbelievers. But if you talk to them about Jesus, don't they point to their good deeds as why they don't need Jesus? You see, their good deeds aren't really good deeds. It is a sense of moralism. It is a sense of, I don't need Jesus because I'm okay. And by using their good deeds as a sense of their own earned righteousness, it makes it actually an action of evil that pushes them further. Spit on Melissa. I'll move over here. Further and further away from Jesus. 
And our sinfulness, it extends not only to attitudes and, and actions, but also to the way we speak. The throat is an open tomb. It speaks of corruption and death. With their tongues, they practice deceit. The poison of, of asps is under their lips. Practice deceit, lies, untruth. The idea of the poison of asps is that the, their words really are destructive. Rather than words that build up, their words that, that tear down. Whether than words that help, their, their words that hinder. Whether than words that heal, their words that destroy. That's the, the sinful mouth accomplishes these things. Whose mouth is, is full of cursing and bitterness. Now this is interesting because cursing here doesn't actually seem to mean profanity like we would say cussing. Instead, cursing here means speaking ill of others. Right, so a person who's a sinner's mouth who is filled with cursing is someone who runs others down. They talk about them like they're a dog. They, they speak ill of them at whatever opportunity they have. And their hearts and their words are just bitter and angry and never happy. And it goes on. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood, quick to respond to violence. Destruction and misery are in their ways. The way of peace they have not known. You know, the reality is living a life of sin never brings peace, joy, and happiness. Instead, a person who's living in sin, they just destroy the world around them. They destroy their marriages. They destroy their reputations. They destroy their hope. They destroy lives. They destroy their children. They destroy churches. That there's just... Have you ever known someone who just everywhere they went, they brought misery and hopelessness with them? They just made everything bad. That's kind of the picture there. And there is no fear of God before their eyes. And this is an interesting statement, no fear of God before their eyes. Because again, when we think of people who are, are sinners, who are un Righteous, we kind of go to people who are hostile and, and angry towards God. And that's certainly some. But no fear of God before their eyes. It actually, really, basically what it means is that God's not a part of any of their thoughts. One of the Psalms talks about this, that, that God is not in any of their thoughts. Right, so, a, a sinful person, as it's meant here with no fear of God before their eyes... It may be the person who is hateful towards God. And they hate the concept of Jesus and all of that. But it can also be a person who, who just is apathetic toward it. It's great for you. I don't need it. Right? They, they never consider God's will or God's want for their lives. They never take an action. And they never think about God or what He has said or what He would have for anything that they do. Now, this is a pretty terrible view of humanity, isn't it? I mean, that is awful. But let's be honest. Isn't this the world that we live in? I mean, we're in a, an election cycle right now. And everybody's taking sides. When you watch the, the pundits and the talking heads on TV... 
Wouldn't you say that the throat is an open tomb? Wouldn't you say that the poison of, of asps is on their lips? When you watch the candidates talk about all that they're going to do to fix the world and make it a better place, wouldn't you say that with their tongues they have practiced deceit? Doesn't the news daily show us that there are people who are swift to shed blood? And that the way of misery abounds. I mean, this is our world. Let's bring it closer to home. This isn't just for those out there. It's not just for the talking heads and the politicians and the members of ISIS and things like that. Don't we all know people who have no fear of God before their eyes? The lives they live of open sin, just flaunting the the things that God has said, it, it testifies. There's no fear of God in their eyes. Don't, don't we know people whose mouths are just filled with bitterness? Who are just untrustworthy because they tell a lie at, at every turn. People who have no peace in their lives ever as far as we can tell. But let's bring it closer to home and let me meddle a bit. Haven't you gone astray from God's paths before? I have. Hasn't your mouth been full of cursing and bitterness toward others at times? Mine has. Haven't you taken actions that you knew God didn't want you to do and that testified that really there was no fear of God before your eyes. I, I have done that. See, this doesn't testify of the world out there. This testifies of the world in here. This is who all of us are naturally. And if we had time this morning, we could look at Romans three nineteen and 20 that says that the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. We could look at the Ten Commandments and see that not only are we sinners naturally in our hearts, but we have, we have sinned by choice. We are, we are double sinners. Sinners in our hearts, sinners in our actions. We have chosen to do things God has said not to do. Now with that in mind, turn back to Romans 5 and 8. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners. You see, God doesn't love us when we became good, whenever that may have been. God loved us when we were not righteous, no, not one. God loved us when we did not understand and we did not seek after Him. God has loved us when we have turned aside and become unprofitable. 
God has loved us when we did not do good, when our throats were an open tomb, when our tongues were filled with deceit. We were more like poisonous serpents than we were like angels or servants of the Lord. When our mouths were full of cursing and bitterness, when we were violently angry, destruction and misery were in our ways. Peace we had not known when there was no fear of God before our eyes. God loved us. Isn't God's love for us amazing? I mean, isn't, isn't that life-changing to know that God's love for you is not dependent upon your, your goodness or your morality? For God loved you when you were not good and you were not moral. And that's not going to change. God loved us regardless of anything else because God is love and He cares for the people He has created. And His love is not the mere love of words. He didn't just say, I love you and send us a Hallmark card. He demonstrated His love in the most amazing way possible. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, that's the, that's the whole point of why Jesus came. He came to die for our sins. See, our sin, it's not just a problem. Our sin is, is not just something we need to manage or we need to try to do better at. Our sin makes us guilty before God. Our sin makes us worthy of His judgment. Our sin urges, earns wages, which is death. And in this state, we were guilty, we were condemned, and we were headed to judgment. But God did not want that for us. God had plans for us that were better than judgment, better than condemnation. God's desire is that we would know Him and we would experience His love. Romans 5 talks about the love of God being shed abroad in our hearts. God intends for us not to just intellectually know that He loves us, but to experience it in a tangible way in this life. That we can walk with Him now and spend eternity with Him in heaven, experiencing the the best of anything there has ever been. But our sin cut us off from all of that. Our sin took us down the wrong path, away from the path that God wanted for us. Our sin earned some wages. And God, while He is love, He is also holy. And He is also just. And He is also righteous. And a holy God cannot just accept sin into His presence. A just God cannot excuse sin. I mean... People say, well, if God is loving, then surely He's just going to overlook it. But don't we see things in the news where judges let guilty criminals go and we think, what a, what a terrible judge. What an unjust decision. Why would we think a, a human judge is unjust for letting the guilty go free, but think the righteous God of heaven is unjust for demanding punishment be paid for the guilt that we have earned. For God to be good, He must be just. For God to be righteous, the judgment must be the same. 
God cannot have one standard of judgment for me and a different one for you. His judgment must be the same across the board. So my sin makes me guilty. And my sin condemns me. And my sin makes me, by nature, a child of wrath. Just like yours. And God said, I have something better. And He came up with a way that would satisfy His justice and His mercy and His holiness and His love. And Jesus came. And He he lived the perfect life. He, he did the things we could not do. He, he was never not righteous. He, he always understood. He always sought after God. He never turned aside. And, and on and on, Jesus always did everything the Father wanted Him to do without fail. And because He was innocent, He could be punished vicariously in our place. He could take the penalty that our sins deserve. You see, on the cross, Jesus was not being martyred for the cause. He wasn't poor, pitiful Jesus. Jesus came to earth and he did good things, but they turned on him and they, you know, they had him unjustly convicted and he was crucified. Poor Jesus. No, the gospel is not the poor Jesus gospel. The gospel is the wonderful Jesus gospel who came for that very purpose. He came with the express purpose of living a perfect life and dying a sacrificial death. And on the cross, there was more than the physical pain that was going on. On the cross, God laid upon Jesus all of the wrath and all of the condemnation that my sin deserved. All of the wrath and all of the condemnation that your sin deserved. You could say accurately that Jesus endured hell on the cross so that we could be spared from that fate. And after He had endured all of God's wrath for all of our sins, He cried out, it is finished. And he gave up the ghost and he died. But that wasn't the end of the story. Three days later, he rose from the dead to demonstrate that he was indeed the Son of God. That what he had said was true. That sins could be forgiven. That death had been defeated. And judgment could be taken away. And now, through faith in Jesus, we can be saved from the awful wrath to come. And all of that was done. Simply because God loved you and God loved me. How awesome, how amazing is God's great love for us. How is that not life changing? And as I was thinking about this verse for the last couple of weeks, there was one central truth that I think is both humbling and encouraging and important to us to understand our identity in Christ. I am more sinful than I imagine and more loved than I ever dared hope. We are all far more sinful than we imagine that we are. The depths of our depravity is far worse than we allow ourselves to think that it is. But the good news we are far more loved than we had ever dared hope. 
When you think about Jesus dying for our sins, we, we again, we have to understand how this all works. I grew up reading military books. I read mostly about World War II, about Vietnam, and about infantry soldiers. And in every good story, in every good book, there is at least one soldier who dies to save his buddies. He jumps on the grenade, takes the brunt so that everyone else can live. He charges the machine gun nest and takes the bullets to allow his friends time to get from being pinned down. One way or another, they, they die to save everyone else. And, and, and there are stories like this that abound. And if we're not careful, we can look at that and we can say, well, that's the, the nature of humanity. That's who we all are. People just naturally die for others. But I wonder, is that really true? Think about all the people that you know in life. Okay? Now think about the people that you love. Narrow down from who you know to who you love. Now narrow it down to those that you would die for. Now if you're like me, it may go from you know, thousands to hundreds to a very small few. And out of those few that you would die for, here's what I will guarantee. It is someone that you love and someone who loves you. It's not someone at work that's hateful. It's not someone that bullied you in high school. It's not someone that has keyed your car. It's not someone who cusses you out. Those for whom you would die love you dearly and you love them right back. But you see, that is not the picture of Romans 5.8. The picture of Romans 5.8 is not that of a soldier dying for his buddies. It is not that of a mother dying for her child or a child dying for his mother. A better picture would be that of a soldier dying for an enemy combatant. For Scripture declares that as sinners, we are the enemies of God by our attitudes and by our actions. While truly God loved us, we did not love Him right back. We did not care about His will. We did not care about His ways. And yet He willingly, joyfully, the Bible says, sacrificed His life for ours. That we might have life through His name. We are far more loved than we had ever dared hope. And when we really grasp that, it is life-changing. How can I not love one who has loved me like that supremely? John understood that. That's why he said, we love him because why? He first loved us. How can the one who has loved me in that way not be the supreme object of my devotion? How could I ever say no to anything one who loves me that much would ask me to do? How could I not devote my life to His will, and His ways, and His cause? When I understand the greatness of God's love for me, I, I cannot help but do all that I can to live for Him. 
Let me ask you this morning, have you experienced God's love for you through faith in Jesus? For truly, there is no experience of God's love apart from faith in Jesus. God loves you. He wants you to be saved. But His first desire for you is that you would repent of your sins and you would believe on Jesus Christ and then you would be saved. And at that point, the Holy Spirit will begin to shed the love of God abroad in your heart. But to repent of your sins and believe in Jesus, that is your decision. It's something that only you can do. It is to make an intentional decision to say, I am turning away from the life of rebellion. I acknowledge I'm going in the wrong direction. And I'm going to turn and go in the direction that God wants me to go. I'm going to leave the broad path for the narrow path. The way of unrighteousness for the way of righteousness. And I do this because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That is your decision and only you can make it. And I would urge you today to make that decision now. Let's stand as our musicians come forward.